I'm going to encourage you now to read uh, to me how Christ says we should listen to his word. Why do I say that Exodus 20, written some more than 1,000, 1,500 or more years before Jesus, are Jesus' words? Why do I say that? Because Christ, when he he discusses the law in his first sermon, says... Do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets in Matthew 5, 17. I did not come to abolish. I came to fulfill. It's his law. It's his word. Then read to me what Christ says. How ought we to read his word? If anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. I am an iconoclast. And I'm proud of it. What's an iconoclast? Somebody likes to break down convention. Look, I was born an iconoclast. My dad, my dad is as rebellious as his dad. I'm, I am by nature, honestly, by generation, third to fourth generation. I am a rebel without a cause. <laughs> iconoclast. Somebody likes to break down what everybody else commonly believes. But you know where it comes from, don't you? Do you know where it comes from? It comes from an historical movement. And it comes from a historical movement called the Reformation. And in the 16th century, in the 16th century, the icons of the church, the images of the church, the statues of the church, which were being venerated and inappropriately owned, were smashed. Uh, Whole riots of robs because of riots of mobs. Oh, it doesn't matter. Bunches of people in anger stormed the churches of Europe and defaced the page. If you go to Europe today, you will see that all the all the different all the different um, images on the outside, especially every face is smashed. Some of them are the whole heads are knocked off, and the iconoclasts, the image breakers, would throw rocks. They just kept throwing rocks at the church until they broke the faces. Iconoclasts, Christians. Reformers, we are the great iconoclasts. Amen. Let's storm the castle. Now, uh, when I make Prince's Bride references, I expect a chuckle. I expect somebody to smile. I expect something. We are the great iconoclasts. Actually, if you go up to Grace Cathedral in Knob Hill, if you go up there right now, um, on that beautiful, beautiful building they have, a beautiful, beautiful building. Um, all there are a bunch of empty, empty spaces. All you'll, if you look, there's like little shelves on the outside where the statues of the saints would have been in Europe, and they're all empty. You know why? They're honoring the Reformation iconoclasts, and those empty pedestals that are, that are all around the outside of the cathedral are meant to are meant to be an homage to iconoclasts. Because idolatry always enters the church, and it entered the church badly in the Middle Ages. We're going to now read the law of God. We're only going to read up to the first four or five verses because there's so much to unpack in the second commandment that um, I will be, it will be difficult to do it in the time allotted. So uh, let's do this. I'm going to read those verses. I'm going to, and I'll tell you exactly what I'm going to do. I don't know if you have any illusions about what I'm going to do. I'm going to read it. Uh, Abby, will you close the doors for me, please? It's a little bit noisy. Um, I'm going to read it. 
then we're going to go through the text bit by bit. Then I'm going to show you what I think it's teaching and why idolatry is so dangerous. I'm going to invite you to find your, idol your idols. And I'm going to point you to Jesus. I'm going to tell you that idols blur Jesus. They obscure Jesus. They ruin everything. I'll tell you, I think you'll see why by the end. And then I'll end with an instruction. I'll end with an instruction about how we need to use our imagination to see God and uh, do an inventory for idols. So I, that's the whole sermon. I guess I could quit right now, but that wouldn't be fair. And uh, let's go. Let's read this first. Let's read this now. I'll read it to you. I'll read it to you and briefly call upon the Holy Spirit to enter uh, our hearts. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Father, Father, we ask to see Jesus. If you would terrorize us in some sense, in a good way, by the law, would you terrorize us and, and kill our self-righteousness so we run to Jesus, for he is no idol. Father, open the word to us. Open it to me. Forgive the sins of the one who speaks, for there are many. Forgive the sins of all of us who hear, for there are so many. And show us your son. In Christ's name, amen. All right, let's take a look at the text now. The text is actually really, not, really, uh, really well, well, well constructed. This command has a peculiar, has peculiar parts. Did you notice? If you were to compare it to all the other ten, you'll notice some things. First of all, you'll notice that this is the second commandment in the list I'm constructed here. This is the second commandment. Now, in some traditions, this is not the second commandment. It's still the first. There was a reason for that. So the, 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 the combining of the first two commandments was done in some medieval theology in order to defend, in order to defend the use of icons. Same issue we began with, right? Same thing. So if you were to look in some Catholic traditions, you'd see, I don't know if all Catholic traditions <laughs> teach this, but you would see that number one and number two, as I've listed them here in verse three and four, would be together, one command. And then in order to keep the 10 number, uh, you would divide numbers uh, uh, down in verse 17, you would, you would divide coveting. And it would say, you shall not cover your neighbor's house. And it would be the, the 10th commandment would be, you shall not cover your neighbor's wife. That is, an, I think that, that order, that, that division I just described, I think is inaccurate. It is inaccurate for a number of reasons. Uh, it's inaccurate. The rabbinic tradition does not, does not observe it, uh, for one thing. But it's also inaccurate because it misses <sighs> the depth of this teaching. All right, let's go a little further here. So you, it says you should not make for yourself any graven image. Now I'm just looking at the text so we make sure we all understand what the words are or any likeness of anything. That word likeness, I don't know if you remember Genesis 1 in the creation of all things, where everything's made after its kind. That's the word there. 
of its kind, created things. You'll notice it doesn't make any likeness. Now, some people have interpreted this to mean that it is wrong to make any kind of image at all. And it would obviously, since Ebby's an art teacher, he's not only an idolater, he's an idol maker. He's an idol maker who teaches other people to make the other people how to make idols. Ebby is evil. <laughs> Actually, he is, but for many other reasons, the ones I just described. That is, that is absolute. That, that has actually been the interpretation at some quarters. And let me let me let me encourage you. That is just plain stupid. Uh, in the creation of God's temple and His tabernacle, His tent, His living place, He 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 commands, and the Holy Spirit fills a man to be an artist. Isn't that great? It's the Holy Spirit's work that fills a holy ad and uh, uh, Bezalel. And they, and they, it's filled by the Spirit, make things. And get this, God loves abstract art. At the bottom of every curtain is a little pomegranate. And it's purple, made of purple yarn. Pomegranates aren't purple. God must have loved Gauguin and Matisse and their play with color. I mean, that's, it's fun. But God's celebration, even angels are pictured over the ark. So this is not about simply the creation of artistic expression. This is about the creation of images to worship in particular. What does it say? Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. But let's go a little further. Did you notice something? You shall not make it a graven image of any likeness of anything that is in the heavens above or is in the Earth's video or in the waters under the earth. Is anybody familiar with what that is? It's, it's a three-tiered cosmology. It's a pre-scientific, simple view of what? The universe. All that is. That's what it is. That's all it is. Please don't be and please don't entertain that the Bible is somehow irrelevant or foolish or mistaken when it speaks in an ancient cosmology or pre-scientific words. It speaks in pre-scientific words because it was written by a pre-scientific man to pre-scientific people. And if it wasn't written like that, that wouldn't be very kind because they wouldn't even understand what he was talking about. Please don't believe that the Bible endorses a pre-scientific view of the, of the universe. It does not, it does not, but in fact, and it's sensitivity and blood. In fact, there's something so deep going on. You'll see it in a second. There's something so deep going on here. So beautiful and so powerful. And by the way, this three-tiered view. Egypt, where they just left. Egypt, the land of Egypt, the land of pharaohs, the land of pyramids, was the land of idols. Oh, man, they had an idol for everything. And they worship the sun in the heavens, and they worship the animals on the ground, and they worship things under the ground, and they, they worship everything. <laughs> everything that moved. <laughs> they were, and if it didn't move, they were, they, were, they were creative and imaginative on a scope that would beggar the imagination. It's a lot like modern, actually a lot like modern India, if you go to India, it's very similar. And so, that's what's going on there. You should not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. And uh, I think that's fairly simple. We'll look at that. Then it goes, after it describes this, it says, it gives a reason. None of the other texts give a reason based upon God's character. What does it say? For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers, the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, but showing mercy to thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. And we are introduced to the nature of God. And I want you to picture here, the way this is being portrayed, this is the lover, God the lover. It works. You'll see why it works in a second. But this is, so God gives a, I'm a lover. That's the jealous, that's what jealousy is here. It's the jealousy of a passionate lover. And what does the jealousy of a passionate lover do? It is aroused with anger when it's rejected. And it's aroused with mercy when it's accepted. This image, by the way, of God as jealous lover, jealous husband, becomes one of the richest motifs of preaching all throughout the Bible. Now, I want you to know something exegetically. It's really, really kind of cool. Some of you are going to say uh, to me that God visiting the, 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 the iniquity on the third and fourth generation sounds arbitrary or cruel or, or difficult. We're not going to explore all of what that means, but I do want you to see one thing. Um, the language Hebrew says, the language in the Hebrew says, in the first thing it says, you shall not make any graven image or any likeness. That word likeness is the same from Genesis 1. And when Genesis 1 says, every animal gave forth its likeness, it says it over and over again. It uses the word, I don't know how many times, every day. Every animal gave forth its likeness of its kind. And so that word, in the Hebrew ear, they would have heard it, what do idolaters give birth to? Yet, do you get the, the illusion in the, the, uh, uh, in the text? What do idolaters give birth to? Idolaters. Kind gives birth to what? Kind. And the play on words here is very clever to the Hebrew because they know that word is being used for the generation of things. And the reality is, and I've seen this working in the inner city for years, is that whether you like it or not, or whether you want to know it or not, or if you go to the prep schools, you'll see it. Wherever the sins of the father are, the daughters do what? The same things. And whatever the mom worships, the sons worship too. And it goes on in cycles. Now, God is a jealous God and it cuts both ways. Now, that's the exegetical observations, and we could make more. But I hope that this kind of starts to pop open for you a little bit as a command. But what I want to explore here now is the theology that's happening. And this is where I get excited about the theology of the text, because the theology of the text is majestic. God is saying, you shall not make a graven image or any likeness of anything in the heavens above, the earth beneath, or the waters under the earth. He's talking about all that is. What is all, what do you call all that is? All that is, all that exists. We have words for it. We call it reality. We call it reality, not to be confused with the local church. We call it uh, the universe. Uh, what else might we call it? Uh, the Bible often calls it creation. All right? And the Egyptians and men in history and men and women, and even to this day, they put, we are tempted to put, if we're not thinking about it wisely, we tempted to put God in here. God is a part of all that is. And that is simply not the biblical perspective. That's, I want you to get this. This three-tier rejection of the universe. What's God saying? I am not a part of what is. I am eternal. 
God is not a part of creation. The creature and the creator are utterly, completely, eternally distinct. Not to be confused, not to be connected, not to be somehow mushed together. And, and this, is, this is the worldview, and you got the three-tiered universe they're describing. We could talk about the universe in terms of 14 billion years of age or 100 trillion years apart. Whatever we know about all that is, and as we understand all that is, it's saying God is not a part of that, and no part of that can picture him. We're being invited into a worldview that might be very, very new to us. It might be kind of startling. And you know, some of us, like a, like a, like a physicist and others, are. Uh, uh, to, this is even all the more vital. God is not a part of His creation, and His creation can never adequately reveal Him. The second part of this, though, that God is not a, this. This image of God is very abstract, isn't it? Still eternal. What's the other thing we learn in this command? What well, we learned in the first command: You shall have no other gods in my face. What is God's view of this connection with this universe and the people in it on all that is? What's his connection with it? He's a lover. He's the lover who approaches it. He's the lover who says, I take you out of slavery. He is the, what does the lover do? What, is, what does every great lover do? He pursues the one he loves. He then it talks about he's a jealous lover. And the jealous lover, his heart's enlarged by faithful love from his pursuit. But why does he respond to the person who doesn't? Hell hath no fury like one, like a woman scorned. Hell hath no fury like those who refuse the jealous God who loves and saves. Sometimes people are confused by the anger of God. I am not anymore. Have you ever seen the surf? When the surf, when the volume of water surges, and the, the bigger the volume of water, this happened right off, the, right off of the coast of Hawaii, when the volume of water gets really this and the tide comes high, the bigger the volume of water as it hits the rock, what, what, what happens the bigger the volume of water? the more stupendous the crash. And there's one beautiful place in Hawaii, as you do it, there's a spout that shoots out because the water comes up and, and it's eroded the volcanic rock and it shoots out like a geyser. We're talking about eternal love coming towards Adele. All this eternal love of a jealous God, the creator outside of time coming for Adele. And if Adele says, oh, no, thank you, what happens with all that eternal love and all of its massive might and volume and beauty? What happens? It explodes. Every kid's pay for it. Everybody pays for it. Powerful image. Huh? Are you an idolater? All right, well, why, 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 what's the real problem? 
Idolaters are clever, by the way. Idolaters will not tell you that, 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 that their God lives in that idol. They're more clever than that. They'll say that the idol is a way to get you to think about the God beyond it. And there's all sorts of clever ways that people think about this. And some of us will say, if we're enlightened 20th century scientific people in America, Chris, we don't, we're not idol, idolaters. We'll turn to Colossians 3.5. Turn to where Paul wisely says under the power of the Spirit, give up greed, which is what? Greed, which built San Francisco. Greed, which haunts your heart, even if you're poor. Greed, which is what? Idolatry. Or what's the problem with idols? Come on, Chris. Why, why is God that upset? I want you to see it. What, what, what do idols do? They limit. Oh, I'm sorry. They limit God. You see, you're not going to know he's eternal if you identify him with creation. You see, it winds up, it makes God small. And and us, when we in our imagination or we what we worship and search for, when we make God small, we have committed a great crime. (laughs) Because he is not. And to limit God, to limit him and obscure him, that's what idols do. What else do they do? What else do idols do? Why are they so dangerous? They limit him. They also, they confuse this distinction. All of a sudden, once God is in here, once God is in here in a part of the universe, you no longer have his majesty. Again, you limit him. There's something else here that I really hate, though. You know what idols really do? They fetish. Anybody know what a fetish is? Now, a lot of people think of that sexually. And it has a sexual connotation. I'm not interested in that. A fetish, classically, anthropologically, is when you take something some little thing, and you say this, and you never notice that idols are always, uh, we even do this in America, with, we don't believe in idols. If you see a statue uh, or a bust in the, in the, in the main, in the main uh, walkway of, a, of an institution, what's on the, what happens to the nose of that, of that person? It's all shiny, right? Because we rub it. Very superstitious people. Huh? I don't care how sophisticated we are. You, you know, all those, all those sophisticated intellectuals at Yale, they, they've got statues that are all rubbed off. Yeah, come on. They probably, every great, we're all idolaters. But what we do is, we take an image, we say, oh, this is, I know this isn't my God, but it's my idol. And by the way, um, uh, the idols have all sorts of things they do for you, but what do you do with the idol? And this is the worst crime of idolatry, not only that it limits God and how you understand him and makes him little, but it also gives you control. What are rabbits for? What are your idols are for? To control your God. You have to do what I say. I've got you in the palm of my hand. I'm my idol. Does anybody get how offensive that must be to an eternal God? You can't fetish God. God will not be controlled. He is sovereign. He is king. He is eternal. He is creator. He is not creature. He will not be robbed for good luck. Ever. And we worship a God of grandeur and greatness and glory and holiness and power and jealousy and love. Not a God that we take in the back room. Not a God like that. Are you an idolater? Have you ever seen, by the way, ancient idols and why they they're really, they're really nasty. Now, one, of the, one of the ones I remember really clearly was this little, it's this little fat woman, and 
She's a fertility goddess. You know? And this is what you do with your god when you have, when you have a little idol. Um, sex is often a part of it. And romance and sex and what you're going to get. And then you, the market. And it controls the market because it controls whether your corn grows or whether your, whether your wheat grows. And you perform all sorts of weird erotic. All, the uh, images are always, very, always, almost always become very, very erotic. And of course, that means you get to participate with the god and maybe have sex with the god's priest or something. Um, and then, it, so uh, money will come out of this. Money and, and seasons and control. And uh, it's practical. It's being practical with life because everybody does it. And it's the way you understand your three-tiered universe and how you get up and how you get ahead and how you get an edge. Are you an adult? You might be. Uh, Calvin said, and one of his most famous quotes, John Calvin, the heart is a little idol factory. Makes a new one. Maybe you're part of that one, and what happens, and you get, maybe you get rid of an idol today, and then tomorrow morning you get up, you make another idol. Something else you're going to. And you may not, we're not, we are not deceived as easily in this world, and this is a good thing, by little fertility goddesses. But what's in, what's in here that helps your sex life, helps control the market and your stock, helps you with practical things day to day to get by and knows, and you know is the way things are really done? What helps you get control of your world and gets you, what, your career? Fill in the blank. You will make an idol. You will make an idol. Something you trust inside the world to get you by, to get you through, and to make you successful. When the Israelites didn't worship idols, everybody around them thought they were crazy! Because <laughs> they were abandoning everything! Oh, by the way, why was the idol made of rocks or stones or wood? Because they all they believed all gods were local, too. There was a god in the mountain, there was a god in that valley, there was a god in that hill, there was a god in that tree. So you made idols, all and you, and you organized them, and if you... If you're really smart, you got a bunch of idols and you worked every angle. <laughs> yeah. And you, you get multiple ones going on. You, I mean, you play it, baby. You gotta diversify, right? You gotta diversify in case one of the idols isn't doing that well. Your, por your idol portfolio has gotta have a breadth to it, just in case some, you know, some of them don't cash out. Any, any clue to what your idols are yet? Any ideas? Any ideas? I still haven't told you why. Idols are such a crime, though. Why they're so evil. They're so pernicious. Why you should run so hard. You know why? Do you know why God hates idols? Because they obscure something very, very important. They obscure and make distant. That he would enter, the creator became the creature in Jesus Christ. Idols are robbers. And they take away from us the reality of the presence of the glory of the Lord God Almighty as he comes in his son Jesus Christ to die for sinners. And Christ even said it. And he said something that will never be repeated again until glory. He who has seen me has seen the Father.
I have come from him full of grace and truth. You get it? If you choose idols, you'll never see Jesus. And that's why he cleared out all the idols in the ancient world of saved to make way. Don't you know I'm going to send my son? And if you, and can you imagine how jealous his love must be now? Because it's not even just his eternal might. It's his own beloved son given to the world to save sinners. And you choose an idol. How dare you reject? Let me tell you something. If you kicked my son and you hurt my son, he probably deserves it. But still, but, but, but even if you did it, what would you get from me? What would you get from me? Seriously, what would you, you would get, I would, I would hate you. It would be so hard not for me to hate you for hurting him. When he would tell me, when boys would tell me about bullies, I would, I went, I hate, I mean, a little, and it's a problem, I had to repent. I'm talking about pure, unadulterated, find those little squirts and slash their tires and, and do something mean. And, <laughs> hatred! And I'm a wicked man. He's a loving God. And he's still. So what, what, what has Christ come to do? He's come to set us free of all of our idols forever. We don't need to fish. We don't need to worry about our career, our work visa. We don't need to worry about our church. We need to seek Christ. We don't need, we don't need to worry about sex or romance. The market doesn't need to control us. I know practical concerns will constantly circle back to hit us, but we have the eternal God in the great lover, Jesus Christ, who loves his church. Give up, my dear children, what does he say? Run away from idols and run to Jesus. How shall we keep this command? How do we keep the law when we discover how the law cuts us up inside? When we realize we're all idolaters, debasing ourselves before the things of this world that we think will give us peace. What do we find when they, we realize that death in our hearts? That Jesus came to save and rescue idolaters. <laughs> he came to save and rescue those who make idols all the time and love them. He came to save us. Praise him. The end of the law always is to drive you back to worship and trust and know Jesus Christ. The creator became the creature to save creatures like you and me. How shall we then live now? I want two things I want you to do going out today. You've got to learn to find your idols. You've got to learn to do inventory all the time. And what I mean is your heart's going to always want to make something that saves you. It always is. Even maybe it's your own righteousness or whatever, you know. And any, let me tell you something. You've got to inventory, inventory, inventory. You've got to do this all the time. What I mean is it's like your, your heart is so tricky and so wicked and so nasty sometimes. It just wants to find something to trust in other than Jesus. And whenever you find that little thing, that's an idol. Turn again to the Lord. So it's that inventory. That's kind of, and by the way, anything can be an idol. Get this. And this happened like folks in the family. I don't know if you're familiar with this big, big evangelical movement that talked about how important family is in the church. But do you know what happened because of that movement? Family became an idol. Oh, we evangelical churches this all the time. In the Reformed Church, in the Westminster Confession of Faith that I come out of, the Westminster Confession of Faith is the most grandiose, beautiful theological document that has ever been written, in my opinion. I believe it's down to my toes. 
And unfortunately, for a number of my brothers, it's an idol. <laughs> we can make an idol of anything. You can make an idol out of him. You can make an idol out of her. You can pick it. We can all do it. We can all find something in creation that's going to save us, change us, or make us happy. Doesn't mean that you're turn again to Jesus. Don't be just don't despair now. Jesus came to save idolaters, of whom I am chief. You know what my idol is? The church and success. Don't threaten my idol. What's the second thing I want you to do? I want you to do this this week. We're not allowed to use images, but we are not allowed to use our imagination. Turn to Isaiah 6 this week. Isaiah 6. Ezekiel 1. Uh, Revelation 1. Or any other part of Revelation at the end of the Brian Orr 22. Images of the New Jerusalem. So what did, what did God give us? And by the way, all they, all, they never really described God. Oh, Daniel, Daniel 7. Uh, does Daniel 7 or Daniel 9? I can't remember. End of Daniel. What did God give us? Because he knows we need to see things. He gave us men and women who saw things. And by the way, this is what they say. I saw something like the appearance of something like a burning that was kind of like a burning. They can't describe it. The creature, when he gets, when he gets a vision outside of here, just kind of goes, uh, it was really shiny. Honestly, that's exactly what it... It was really, really bright, and he talks really, really loud. That's pretty much what every vision of God looks like. <laughs> he shines so bright I can't look at him, and his voice was like many thunders or many waters. He's really loud, and he's really bright and shiny. So what I did in prayer, and I encourage you to do in prayer as a sinner and idolater, read those passages before you pray, and imagine them as you pray. If you have some difficulty with that, I'll teach you a little trick I learned. To get myself to pray sometimes. This is this going back many years ago. I'd sit there. I'd imagine the throne of glory. The firmament in the sky. It describes like a, a vast, a vast, like rainbowish. There's rainbows above the throne. There's these burning creatures of fire. There's a throne that looks like sapphire. I picture myself there. I picture, and I can never really look right at him as I'm speaking to him, but I can see the corner of his chair. And I picture myself grabbing that corner to talk to him. And then one time I remember thinking, this seems so crazy. But then I thought, whoop, and I'll invite you to do this if you're having a hard time with belief or imagination. I asked myself, what would I say if I was in that position? Let's put myself in the vision with John, afraid perhaps, what would I say if I knew I was there? And the minute I did that imaginative exercise, by the way, a whole bunch of stuff came up. I started talking about this and that. Well, this is what I'd say. You know, please. And the minute that started happening, I started saying what I think I would say if I was in that place where the creature was finally with the creator. And, I'd and you know what happened? After a couple minutes, I was there. I'm like, I, I'm here. And no idol involved. 
you shall not make to yourself any grave image or any likeness of anything that is in the heavens above or the earth below or the waters under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, but showing mercy to the thousands of them who love me and keep my commandments. Let's pray. Father, we would love you and keep your commandments. And we would give up our idols. Give us Holy Spirit power to do so. For some of us, turning to your son Jesus now and seeing him in his glory, seeing that he is the image of the invisible God, seeing that he is this great and glorious, and seeing how idols obscure him in your love, seeing that he comes as a lover to save sinners, the creator has come to save the creature. Some of us, this is new to see you this way. I pray for each person here because this is new. That, that new joy, they would give themselves to you now with new joy. Some of us, our lives are so cluttered with idols and we're looking at it right now, it's like we've, we've got a whole closet full and they're spilling out into our lives and all little tricks and things and ways we're trying to control our lives and our romance and, our, and the things we want and our markets and, our, our own, and everything. Oh, everything, oh, we're diversified and all these. We realize that we've been worshiping and seeking the creature to save us, ourselves to save us, our work to save us, the things we make to save us, and not the creator. Forgive us. Help us to do a new inventory regularly about our idolatry. Teach us how to do this. Teach me how to do it. I, we, we get so uh, distracted and fooled. But do this, Father. We would ask this. We prayed beginning this. Father, we ask to see Jesus. Because we know if we can see Jesus, idols will look worthless. They'll, they'll, look, they'll look like what they are. Just a pile of junk. That we hoard it. We want to be free. Father, give us a vision of Jesus. We come to the table, give us a vision of Jesus. Father, renew our passion for Jesus. Father, draw us again to Jesus. Pray this in, in Jesus' name right now. Amen. All right. Um, On the night he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread and broke it, saying, this is my body, which is for you. Take and eat. You see, the eternal became the creature. The same way he also took a cup of wine, he poured it, and said, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. It's the blood of the covenant. Take and drink. Again, the creator became the creature. To save the creature. Every week, we celebrate a transcendent God with an imminent, immediate grasp on his love. If you know Jesus Christ, this is your table. If you're fleeing from idols and you've been dirty and soiled with them, I'm sure, at times, come to your Savior. If you, for the first time, know this is your Savior, come to your Savior and know the love of the Creator from beyond time and beyond space, that enter time and space here. Come to your Creator. Ah! 
Ah, there's one idol that religious Christians love, and that is their goodness. How all the good works they do, they can't stop telling everybody what they do. No good deed goes unreported. If you think you're a good woman, if you think or imagine you're a good man, you are an idolater. And you don't belong at this table. You have chosen your works and your life and your career and your portfolio. You have, you have chosen an idol over Jesus. And if you choose an idol over Jesus, you don't, you, this is not your table. Good people are forbidden to come to the table. Sinners and idolaters who confess it and love Jesus, get here as fast as you can. All right. Um, finally, if you're a skeptic and you've been listening the whole time thinking, boy, the guy talks good, but he still, still sounds like a moron, then just, just, just wait. Wait until my words sound wiser than they sounded today. Wait until God has spoken to you. And when the moment comes that you are jealous of Charlotte when she comes forward, or Adele, or Peter, or Will, and you're jealous that these people know a God like this, can I know a God like this? Then someday you will, if you call on him. We're going to read the Nicene Creed together. That is a, a, a summation of Christian doctrine from the third century. We'll read it together, as an and, and I ask you to assent to its parts and pieces in order to participate. Uh, while we're do, after we do that, we're going to sing a song as we sing and praise this wonderful creator as his creatures. As we sing and praise him, we will uh, come forward to get the bread and the wine. This is grape juice here to the left, correct? Uh, uh, there's grape juice arranged here to the left if you prefer it. Take, the, take the, uh, the cup and the wine back to your seat. By the way, they're not idols. They're not anything like that. They're not, we don't worship these things at all. But they are telling us the creature creator has become what? One with the creature. And so, and so we, we do it because Christ instituted it to remember him. All right, and then, we, well, then we're done. We're going to have lunch together at Twitter. Anything you need to remember? What? Oh, yeah, prayer for the children. Brittany and Timothy, will you do that for me in the back, please? Timothy and Brittany will be in the back to pray with children. Uh, if anybody wants to take their children back there for prayer, or if you just really need prayer, come as a child to them too, and uh, they'll be happy to pray with and for you while we're coming forward for communion. So take your children back there for that, and perhaps you'll get some better obedience out of them <laughs> after some prayer. Let's, we can only hope. Uh, all right, let's do this. Uh, let's do the, uh, uh, let's stand and do the creed.